And if you would, turn with me now to our sermon text, which comes for the second time from the book of Jude. Jude, of course, having just one chapter, so we just refer to it by its verses. So we will be looking this morning at Jude, verses 3 and 4. So hear now the word of the Lord. Dear friends, I had been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share. But now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. Condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you this morning for the chance to once again read and study and sit at the foot of this short book in your holy scriptures. And we do thank you for the way that you have uniquely and purposefully given us these very verses. And so, Lord, I pray now that you would be with us as a church, that you would really give all of us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand your word to us, that you would use this to equip us for every good work that you have for us to do as individuals and as a church, and that you would cause the truth of these verses to be planted deeply in our hearts and not only to begin bearing fruit today, but to bear fruit for a lifetime. We pray all these things, Lord, in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we do come back to our new sermon series from the book of Jude this morning by looking at verses 3 and 4. And in many ways, these two verses really lay out for us what we would call the topic sentence, to take you back to English class in middle and high school, the topic sentence of this entire letter from Jude, or another way to put it would be his main thought, exactly what is going to lead to everything Jude is going to unpack throughout the rest of his letter. So it's important that we understand exactly what he is talking about in these two verses, because that's going to impact everything else we'll see throughout the rest of this letter. Now, Peter Davids helpfully says about verses 3 and 4, this thematic statement sets out the major issue of the letter, which is the need of the church receiving the letter to defend the faith against certain people who have slipped in among them. Now, to say that another way, Jude presents us with an incredibly important concept that all Christians and churches throughout the centuries need to realize. So let me ask you all this this morning. When you think of defending the faith, or perhaps more literally, contending for the faith. What do you think about? What, what comes to mind when you think about that phrase? Maybe you think of a Christian leader or a Christian apologist who is skilled at debating non-Christian philosophers in an attempt to defend the truth of Christianity against attacks from other religions and philosophies. Or maybe you think of a Christian politician who is working in the inner circles of government to defend the faith and the importance of the faith, to establish principles from the faith 
in that society. Or maybe you think even of a middle school-aged Christian who is aiming to grasp Christian truths for the first time in his or her life as he or she comes face-to-face with the bombardment of non-Christian influences that surround them in this world. Now, those are all good and right things for Christians to do, but according to Jude, none of those are examples of defending the faith or contending for the faith. And here is why. Someone who is a professing Christian and desires to follow biblical teaching will certainly have to choose whether to follow the Christian faith over other faiths or other religions or philosophies. We encounter that every day. But that is the choice between following Christ or following another way in this world. No harm is being done to the message of Christianity because this battle is more about an individual choosing whether or not to follow biblical teaching. But that is decisively not what Jude is speaking of here. Rather, Jude is talking about something much more crafty, much more devious and sinister, much more dangerous to the Christian faith. Jude is talking about the twisting of biblical truths by people inside the church to fool professing Christians and cause them to live contrary to the faith that has been passed down to all believers from generation to generation to generation. Which leads to our first, our two main points this morning. Point number one, contending for the faith is done inside the Christian community. Contending for the faith is done inside the Christian community. And point number two, God's marvelous grace has freed us to live righteous lives. God's marvelous grace has freed us to live righteous lives. So point number one, contending for the faith is done inside the Christian community. And we see this in verse three and the first part of four. Dear friends, I had been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share, but now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend or contend for the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches. Now, Jude opens up this letter explaining the reason why he is writing. And there's a couple of really clarifying points that give us a good window into this. First, we see that Jude is writing to his dear friends, which is more literally translated as beloved. And this is not those beloved to Jude, though that's true. This is those beloved by God. And this relates back to what he said in verses 1 and 2. So if you were here last week, this may resonate. We see that Jude is writing to people who are loved by God, verse 1, and those whom Jude prays will receive more and more of God's love, verse 2. And now he opens up his main thought by using the word love again to communicate that those he is writing to are the beloved, those loved by God. Now this is important because we get some insight here into the nature of of the church on earth. And for those in our youth discipleship class this morning, we talked a little bit about this about an hour ago. Here in the, here in the church on earth, we understand that the church is made up of people who have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. 
And that is a very important aspect about the establishment of a church. Anyone who makes a profession of faith in Jesus is part of what we call the visible church. And one of the reasons that churches even exist in this world is to give a place for people to publicly profess their faith in Jesus, thus announcing to the world that they are a slave to the one true Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, to use the language of verse 1. But with that said, not all members of the visible church are part of the true church, which is what we would call the invisible church. The invisible church is made up only of those who really have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, not simply made a profession of faith with their mouth. You cannot normally have true faith without making a profession of faith publicly, but you can have people who publicly profess their faith and yet don't really have a true faith in their heart and soul. And Jude is making clear at the beginning of this letter that he is writing to those who are beloved. That is to say, those who are part of the true invisible church, who have a real authentic faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, they are part of the visible church, but much more importantly, they are part of the true church, the invisible church, those united to Christ for all of eternity. And Jude had great enthusiasm to write to them. And the essence of the letter had a focus initially. It was going to be a discussion on the salvation that all these true Christians share. But something has happened. Something has gone wrong. And the problem is not something from outside the church. The problem is something on the inside. Something is wrong within the visible church, which is threatening the witness of true biblical faith. And Jude finds it imperative for him to write to the true Christians that are part of the visible church because they have a job to do within the visible church. And that is to contend for the faith. Not in the world at large, but inside the visible church. So what is meant by the phrase then, to contend for the faith? Well, this is a Greek word that is used really to connote popular athletic imagery at this time. Douglas Moo says, contend is a strong word. It refers to the exertions of the athlete. Thus, Jude urges his readers not simply to resist the false teacher's perversion of the faith. They are actively and energetically to fight for it. To say it another way, Jude is, is laying out in this topic sentence a scene for us. He has defined the battlefield as the visible church. That might surprise us at first, but that is the battlefield that has been defined, which is made up of the beloved who have a true faith in Christ and, verse 4, ungodly people who have wormed their way into the church by professing faith in Jesus without actually trusting or following him. Now, as a side note, the question often comes up, especially among people outside the church. All right, if what you say about Christianity is true, why aren't all churches perfectly peaceful, with perfect unity, and perfect joy, and, and all the aspects? Why does the church so often look no different than the rest of the world? Now, there are multiple answers to that question, but this verse gives us one answer to that question. 
You see, the visible church on earth is constantly invaded by ungodly people who profess faith in Christ and yet undermine biblical faith because they do not truly love the Lord that they claim to follow. They are not actually slaves of Jesus Christ as their other members of that visible church are. So the job of the faithful believers inside the church is always to contend for the faith. And Jude clarifies what he means by faith. He says the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. All right? That is not to say the objective faith that we have been given to put trust in Christ. The faith would be biblical truth, the biblical faith that is laid out for us in the entirety of the Scriptures. And so this gets to the point, right? True biblical faith is not something that ebbs and flows or changes within different cultures or eras or society. We do not learn more as human beings and then adjust Scripture to our newly enlightened human reason. We do not expect a single message of prophecy or revelation to come from God that disrupts or alters or contradicts the revealed Word of God that we hold in our hands this morning. You see, the message of the Christian faith, the message of the gospel from Genesis to Revelation that we receive right now in 2023 is the same faith that the Apostle John delivered to Polycarp. Who delivered it then to Irenaeus? It is the same faith that was delivered and converted St. Augustine and the same faith that was delivered and believed upon by Thomas Aquinas. It is the same message of faith that exploded in a renewed way, not a new way, but a renewed way by the reformers like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Theodore Beza. It is the message proclaimed by the Puritans in England, the itinerant preachers during the Great Awakenings and marvelously preached and exemplified by Martin Luther King Jr. and Billy Graham. It was the foundational message of both the Reformed Presbyterian Church in Scotland and the Associate Presbyterian Church in Scotland who came to America and unified to form the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church in America, which through many twists and turns has brought the true biblical faith to Village Presbyterian Church in 2023. It is the full revelation of God delivered once and for all to every single one of the members of God's true invisible church made up of the entirety of God's holy people have been, who have been washed and cleaned by the blood of Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, when you think, what have you been entrusted with that is more valuable than anything else? The faith, the biblical faith that has been passed down from generation to generation is a gift that has been passed down because it is the power of God to save people from their sins and to bring people out of slavery to the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's dearly beloved Son. So Jude makes the very clear point that when we receive this most precious and valuable faith, we have a job to do with it. We must contend for it. We must defend it. And that contending and defending is not something we do outside the church. 
We evangelize those outside the church to bring them in. We contend for the faith with those inside the church to keep God's once and for all message pure. And commentator David sums it up perfectly when he says, while one might contend for the faith against those who are not part of the believing community, that language is never used in the context of the New Testament. The debate in this situation is far more problematic. The problem is the presence in their midst of those who teach by word and deed an alternative version of the Christian belief. You see, that is why we have to actively and energetically contend for the faith inside the visible church, because that is where the message of faith can become perverted. People outside the church cannot pervert the message of biblical faith because they do not lay claim to it. But those inside the church can. And it is often done in some form of the same thing, which is what we see in our second point this morning. Point number two, God's marvelous grace has freed us to live righteous lives. We see this in verse 4. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You know, again, the point here is, is pretty clear, but it's important to unpack exactly what he's saying. The essence of Jude's concern is that there are ungodly people who have wormed their way into these churches, always on the basis of their supposed faith in Jesus, and yet they pervert the message of God's grace in such a way that it allows people to go headlong into immorality as opposed to truly seeing what the grace of God is supposed to produce. They're allowed to go headlong into immorality and still pretend that they are united to Christ. Now, I did, did not mention this last week, but it was kind of striking, if you were here, that Jude doesn't open with a prayer for grace. You know, in verse 2, he says he's, he's praying for them to receive more and more mercy, more and more peace, and more and more love. <clears throat> but he excludes grace. And I think the reason is because of what we see in verse 4. Gene Green says that most likely Jude excludes the wish prayer for grace since the fundamental problem in this letter is the distorted understanding of grace that the heretics had introduced to the church. So to say that another way, I'll ask you all this. Do all Christians need grace? Absolutely we do. Do we all need more and more and more grace? Absolutely we do. That is the only way that we are brought unto salvation. The only way we continue to be transformed and grow is by the grace of God. But do we need more and more of the grace these false teachers are proclaiming? No, absolutely not. Well, what they claim is that God's marvelous grace has freed believers to live immoral lives. And they are almost right. You know, that is how false teaching comes into the church, by having many right things and changing one word or the meaning of one word to put somebody a whole other direction. 
So are they right that the grace of God is marvelous? Absolutely, they're right. Are they right that God's marvelous grace has freed us? Yes. Are they right that God's marvelous grace that has freed us impacts every part of our life? Yes. But that's when they go wrong. Their application is that what it has freed us to do is to not worry about our sin. To just go headlong into our immorality for the grace of God covers all of that. Now, I want to give a story here about one of the first real times I encountered this in a very direct way in my life. In the summer of 2014, I was entering my final year of seminary, and I I thought at the time the Lord might be calling me to be a campus pastor with Reform University Fellowship. So I applied and went to the assessment center in Atlanta for kind of a full week-long assessment. And during that assessment, one of the things that every potential campus minister had to do was preach a sermon. And we got put in different groups, and so you hear one another preach sermons, and I can tell you it's a very high-anxiety-producing thing that really sanctified you and pushed you to really grow in your trust of the Lord. But during that assessment, one potential campus minister decided to preach from the back half of one of Paul's letters. Now, if you're familiar with what Paul usually does— the beginning of his letters, he gives us these wonderful statements about what is true. And then the second half of the letter, we get exhortations, uh, commands that are built off of what had been said, what was true. So if you think, if y'all are with us when we studied through Colossians, we saw that. We saw lots of commands at the back half of that study, moral and ethical commands that Paul delivers to believers because they're ready to receive them because of their salvation through Jesus Christ. Commands that define how life should be lived in the kingdom of God's dear Son, rather than the kingdom of darkness. Now, I can't remember exactly what book or what passage this man preached from, but I remember his, his train of thought. In reading about the moral commands that Paul wrote, this pastor made some clear statements. First, he said the main reason Paul gives those commands is so that we can see how we fail at those. That we can see how sinful we really are and that we cannot ever measure up in perfection to those commands. And and that's certainly one reason that Paul does give those, so fair enough. He then said that one right application of those commands is to direct our eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ, who has lived a perfectly righteous life, has taken away our guilt and shame, and has given us all of his righteousness so that we can be made right with God. Amen. Right? Praise the Lord for Christ's work where we fall short. But then he went the way of this error. He said, next, as humans here on earth, we have to realize that we cannot ever attain to the moral commands of Paul. That we will always fall short. But every time we fall short, it actually marvelously makes the grace of God through Jesus Christ much stronger. So, therefore, while we will never be able to attain the lives God lays out for us in the Scriptures, every time we sin, the grace of God abounds and becomes more and more amazing. So we don't need to strive to live increasingly righteous or moral lives. 
We just simply need to strive to rest in the grace through Jesus Christ and not worry in this way. Now, I don't know where this man's faith is. I know I don't want to be judged by the sermons that I preached in highly anxiety-producing times like assessment at RUF. So I don't know if he understood exactly what he was saying or if he would want to clarify statements he made, but hopefully he was corrected for this false view of God's grace. And yet what he was saying is something that we literally hear all the time inside the Christian church today. We hear all the time that biblical faith has nothing to do with our actions in, in life, but simply resting and trusting in Christ. But that is a false dichotomy. You see what that's trying to do? It's trying to make you think resting and trusting in Christ is opposed to working out our salvation with fear and trembling. That resting and trusting in Christ is somehow opposed to growing in righteousness. You see, the assumption goes like this. This ungodly doctrine pretends that resting and trusting in Christ actually is somehow made less effective if we claim that the results of Christ's work should evidence themselves in our actions, in our lives, and in us ever increasing in more and more righteousness. Now, we do not get to heaven based on our own righteousness. But true Christians know that real biblical faith, the biblical faith Judah's speaking of here, works itself out in transformed lives, lives that do become increasingly righteous. And here, Jude is just following his big brother. Ultimately, his big brother Jesus, yes, but also his big brother James. James says in James 2, 14 to 20, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds, but I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God, good for you, even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish! Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? <clears throat> it's an important passage to consider. It's what Jude is also relaying here. What James is saying is that someone who claims to believe in God, who has made this public profession of faith, but whose life is in no way changed or transformed, is no better than the demons. For even the demons would attest almost to everything that we'll attest in a few moments in the Apostles' Creed. They would say that there is one God, and the demons are among the first ones to recognize exactly who Jesus is, aren't they? And yet they tremble in terror. <clears throat> Real biblical faith always evidences itself in increasingly righteous lives. No, actions do not garner our salvation, 
but neither can a verbal profession that makes no impact on a person's life. God's marvelous grace does free us, but it frees us to live life in a way that impacts our every action. It doesn't free us to live immoral lives. It actually frees us for the first time to truly live righteous lives. Not a righteousness that earns our salvation, but a righteousness that actually shows that the marvelous grace of God has been effective in our heart and our soul. I'll put it this way. Someone who claims to rest and trust in Jesus Christ, but goes on living in their immorality, is not actually resting and trusting in Christ at all. It is not as if we rest and trust and go on living in immorality. Resting and trusting in Christ only occurs where we are fleeing immorality. You see, when we want to be freed from the sin within us, what does that require? Resting and trusting in Jesus Christ. It doesn't require us to rest and trust in Christ if we continue to go headlong into our sin. Real resting and trusting in Christ occurs when we are being transformed and changed and seeing that sin more and more brought out of our life and righteousness more and more brought into our life. And we should be aware that this term immorality has a distinctly sexual bent to it. It has to do primarily with sexual immorality. And of course, that's a wonderful application in our world today. You see, no one who goes on living in their addiction to pornography should hear a pastor say, oh, don't worry about that. Everyone struggles. The more you sin, the more God's grace abounds. So don't worry about really focusing on that. You focus just on these other things or aspects. And the same can be said with those caught in affairs and homosexuality and even in deep lust of the heart. False teachers inside the church often promote the grace of God to allow themselves and others to indulge sexual sin. I'll say that again. False teachers in the church often promote and expound the marvelous grace of God to allow themselves and others to indulge in sexual sin. But Jude and James make quite certain that these ungodly people who promote such ideas are not actually part of the true church. After all, as Jude concludes his topic sentence, he says they are actually showing that they are denying Jesus Christ, the only Master and Lord. And to go back to our sermon last week, if you were here, what does Jude call himself? He calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. And so by saying they're denying their only Master and Lord, their only Sovereign and Lord, they're saying those are not ones who have been rescued out of slavery to sin, because they are not a slave to Christ. So as we conclude our sermon this morning, I have just three very brief applications and things to say. First, if you find yourself in the position of one of these ungodly people today, realizing that perhaps you are pretending that your non-transformed life is nothing to worry about at all, then you are invited today to hear the message of the gospel. You don't need someone to pervert the faith passed down from generation to generation to generation so that you can feel better. What you need is to be shown the folly of whoever has taught you that 
and challenged then to receive the true faith passed down to all generations. The freedom to repent of sin, which then allows you to rest and trust in Jesus Christ, that allows you to be freed to live a joyful, righteous life, not to earn salvation, but to actually live in the joy of your salvation. That is the message of the gospel. And y'all, this new life is being proclaimed right now, this very day. But it cannot be soft-pedaled because the real faith is the only thing that brings true freedom in this way. Second, for all of us in this church, we need to realize that when we think of, all right, I'll put it this way. Today we're having a, a congregational meeting, our second one ever. And it is a joyful, wonderful day as we reflect on all the work that has been done. Well, what is the greatest potential threat to the undoing of what has happened here at Village Press? It is very unlikely that that threat is from the outside. Now, they may be able to keep us from worshiping together and, and different things like that, but the real threat to the destroying of the faith here in this local body is what we're reading here. So we need to realize that we cannot idolize peace and unity in a way that allows us to unify with ungodly people who may join the church and destroy our purity because of their desire to indulge in their sins and tempt us to do the same. We have to strive for both unity and purity, the two that must be held together. Now, it's not the sermon here, but we could also idolize the other side as well. But we need to realize what we're seeing here is don't idolize unity over purity, for this is the reality of the visible church. And then finally, to all of our members at Village Prez, realize that while this is primarily the session's job to lead the way, all of you are called to contend for the faith, to defend the faith, not with those outside the church, but with those inside the church, inside this church. May we evangelize those outside the church to bring them in. May we contend and defend the faith with one another while we are here. So when you see brothers and sisters caught in sin, you are not merely to resist that sin. You are called to contend for the faith with them. And you should expect people in this church to do so with you when you fall into this place. In fact, your joining into the church is an invitation for your fellow members to, contend, to contend for the faith with you when you are tempted to fall in one of these patterns. That is what it means to do life together. It is to contend for the faith with one another inside the visible church and invite the Lord to use his marvelous grace to actually free all of us more and more and in new ways to live increasingly righteous lives not to wallow in our continued immorality. We will see some very direct examples of this in the coming weeks from Jude. So I won't dig in on all those things, but this is an important one to understand the development he's going to take. But for this morning, let us just remember this. We have been freed from our slavery to sin and the kingdom of darkness, not to live in the patterns of those old ways, but to be a true slave of the one true sovereign Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, the one who always leads us into paths of righteousness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. 
Amen. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us. And Lord, we thank you that the message of the gospel, the biblical faith passed down from generation to generation is not one that just secures us an eternal salvation and then leaves us to wallow in immorality and in all of the, the effects of sin, but to free us to live ever increasingly righteous lives. We know even in the way that that's said that there will always be ways we need to grow. And yet we pray that you would really stir in all of our hearts now, and I pray especially in our children that are present today, that you would put from your Holy Spirit right now this deep restlessness when our children as they grow up, and even our adults as we continue, when we follow in paths of immorality and presume upon the grace. Give us restlessness in those ways and produce great rest and peace when we follow Christ into paths of righteousness. Or may that always be a testimony of Village Prez, that we would be a church that is always seeking unity, but is always seeking purity as well. We love you, Lord, and we pray all these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.